0: Shall we pray as we start? Lord, we give this time to you. We pray that you would speak to us and that we can hold on to the good and forget the bad. Amen. We're going to be having a look at our Jeremiah passage. Um, we'll have a, a bit look at Lazarus. ...later on, but mostly the Jeremiah passage. So if you want to follow it, it's on page 469 of the Bibles. And here we find... ...that Jerusalem is under siege. From the Babylonians, from the north, have come down and invaded. And so nobody can enter Jerusalem... And nobody can leave Jerusalem. Um, it's a desperate situation, perhaps something we're not familiar with, a siege, but it got on for, for quite a while. It's gone on for at least two months. Um, it's hard to know exactly, it, doesn't, it just says the year in which this happened, but it's gone on for at least two months and it goes on for a, a good 18 months. And by the end of it, if you read Lamentations, people are basically starving to death. So a siege is a, is a severe situation they're under. And not only that, but Jeremiah, the prophet, we find is in in prison, effectively. He's under arrest and kept in the courtyard of the guard of the royal palace, verse 2. And we might well ask, well, why is Jeremiah, the prophet, under arrest? Well, because basically he prophesied what God wanted him to to prophesy, um, not what the king, Zedekiah, wanted him to prophesy, so he put him in prison. The king wants to hear prophecies about how God is going to act immediately, he's going to overthrow the Babylonians, they're all going to be saved and they're all going to live happily ever after. That's what Zedekiah, the king, wants to hear. But Jeremiah seems to be prophesying the opposite of that, really. I'm going to read to you what Jeremiah was prophesying, because for some reason the lectionary decided to miss out those three verses. It was verse thirty-two, verses 3, chapter 32, verses 3 to 6. So this is what Jeremiah had been prophesying. This is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand the city over to the king of Babylon, and he will take it. King Zedekiah will be captured by the Babylonians, taken to meet the king of Babylon face to face. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, and I will deal with him there, says the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians you will never succeed. So not the kind of prophecy the king was looking for, and certainly not the kind of prophecy that he wanted Jeremiah telling the people. He wanted them to, he wanted them to be telling the people that it's, it's not going to happen. But Jeremiah was saying the opposite. And even there at the start, perhaps it's a lesson for us when we open our Bibles and when we read it do we only want to hear what we want God to be saying or are our hearts open to what God might be really saying to us Um, are we open to the full gospel message for example naturally we'd much rather hear about how God is going to bless us Um, we're not quite so keen when we read about persecutions for the church. But what does the Bible really say is in store for God's people? A mixture of both, I would say. And the Bible doesn't promise us an easy life as a Christian, even though deep down we really wish it would. Well, I wish it would. But are we open to what God is is saying fully? And God here speaks to Jeremiah again, and he tells him that his cousin is going to come. I know Linda was enjoying all the long words in the passage, all the names, and Pam was happy she hadn't got that reading. Um, But his cousin's going to come, and he's going to ask him to buy his field, and as his closest relative, it's his right, um, or even his duty, to buy the field. Um, Because when the Israelites entered the promised land originally, the land was divided up by tribe, and it was their inheritance. And so if you sold the land, you should sell it to somebody within your family, so it stays in its correct inheritance lot amongst the 12 tribes. And even if you sold it to somebody else, then every 50 years at the year of Jubilee, the land would go back to the original family, so that the inheritance was preserved. So that's the situation. However, they are under siege. So what is the point of Jeremiah buying this land? He's prophesied that the Babylonians are going to take over the land. They're going to rule over it. So what's the point in him buying this land, which he's never going to really rule over or own? I mean, he's in prison anyway. He couldn't get out of the city, even if he wasn't in prison. And there's no record of him ever living in this land that he buys anyway. What a glorious waste of time, we might think. Um, It reminds me of of Hosea the prophet. He's told by God to go and marry an unfaithful wife. And you think, are you sure God told you to do that? Because that's kind of like the exact opposite of what you would expect God to tell you to do. You'd expect God would want you to marry a faithful wife. But he says, "Go, go marry an unfaithful wife as a sign to the people. It's a prophetic sign in his life that you, the people, are like an unfaithful wife. You go off following other gods instead of staying faithful to your husband. And so this here with Jeremiah, even though the land isn't really much use to him, it's a prophetic sign to the people that he should do this. So he does it. So verse 9, Jeremiah buys the field. The deeds are signed and witnessed, verse 10. And in the presence of all the Jews sitting around in the courtyard, verse 12. So people see this, this sign. And he gives instructions to Baruch, whom we see later on is like Jeremiah's scribe or spokesperson while he's in prison because he can take the message out to other people. And the documents are put in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. There's obviously significance to that, but it's going to take a while. And he declares, for this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, someday people will own property here in this land and will buy and sell houses and vineyards. So that's what this prophetic sign of him buying the vineyard, buying this land, means. So the Lord God is proclaiming a future hope for his people through Jeremiah's actions. It's not the message the king wants to hear. He wants to hear salvation now, deliverance now, victory now. But that's not God's plan. He has a future hope for his people. And when I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking about Jeremiah and his other prophecies. And probably the most famous verse in Jeremiah, or the one I seem to come up against quite a lot is from Jeremiah 29, verse 11, just a few chapters before this. And it says, you probably know it well. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And they're verses that we tend to put on a poster, maybe with some kittens or puppies, maybe a little baby. Um, Or maybe attach them to a magnet so we can put them on the fridge. And then we can stand on them and claim them and infer by them that God is going to give us whatever it is we are wanting at that particular time in our lives. Be that a job, a husband, a wife, a house, a place at uni, children, healing... And we forget the context in which the verses are given. Jeremiah 29.11 is preceded by Jeremiah 29.10, which says, This is what the Lord says, You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. I will bring you home again, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. So, 70 years of exile are promised before any of these other prophecies are going to come true. Before anyone was going to be buying fields and vineyards in Israel again, it was 70 years down the line. So, anyone that hears the prophecies is going to be dead before they happen. It's going to be their children or their children's children that are going to be returning to the promised land. It's a future hope for the people of God corporately together. Not an immediate hope for the individual to get what they feel they need for themselves right now. And it's, it's a picture of heaven for us, or of the new creation, of returning the people of God to the promised land. And it's the, the Christian hope, the hope held out in the gospel, a hope that cannot fade or perish or spoil. And so when St. Paul talks of pressing on to take hold of the prize in Philippians, he's not talking about achieving our life goals. (laughs) He's talking about something more permanent than that. And when he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, Perhaps he means it, but he really does desire to be with Christ, which is better by far. And the gospel that we preach here in Alperton, in our relatively comfortable lives, if it's the true gospel, then it must be applicable to all Christians throughout the world. So, for example, if we weren't meeting in Alperton today, but we were meeting, say, in Syria, say we were meeting in Aleppo this morning, would the gospel that we preach... Be the same. I'm sure Christians in Aleppo realize that the things of this world are temporary and that they are passing and fading. And that they cannot be the substance of what the gospel hope is about. I was thinking of the spiritual songs that come out of the the slave trade a few hundred years ago and how many of them seem to be focusing on heaven or on crossing the Jordan. That future hope because their daily lives were awful and they weren't about to get better anytime soon. So they had their hope based on something more solid, more permanent. There's somebody that, that I've known a long time. Um, they, don't, they don't come to this church, another church, and um, they're a committed Christian, they used to have home groups around their house. Um, but they were sick had a severe illness and gradually the illness got worse Um, her marriage broke down eventually she had to go into a care home and recently I heard that, that she died and I thought God what about the plans and purposes that you were supposed to have for her life what happened to them and then I just thought oh Foolish David, her life is not finished. Her life has only just begun. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's from Amazing Grace. So, so we need to believe this stuff. I speak to myself. Do we believe this stuff? Everything. We take Lazarus in our second reading it says he's a poor man he's covered with sores that the dogs come and lick he lays at the gates of a rich man longing for scraps from his table finally he dies and he's carried by the angels to be with Abraham and when questioned by the rich man Abraham states that during his life he's had everything he wanted but that Lazarus had nothing Lazarus had nothing. No money, no food, dreadful health. Doesn't seem to have any family and friends around him. Can't imagine he had a great social life, really. (laughs) Lying at the gates, having his sores licked. And yet when he dies, he goes to heaven. So, assumably, he's a follower of God. You don't go to heaven just because you're poor. So what, did God just forget to bless him in his life? He says he received nothing. I'm not saying today that God can't graciously bless us with houses and careers and full health and husbands and wives and children and all of these things if he chooses to, but they're not guaranteed and they're not the substance or the promise of the gospel. I mean, non-Christians can have all of these things and they're not partakers of the gospel at all. The gospel hope is about permanent things, not temporary things. It's about a permanent inheritance for the people of God that cannot spoil or perish. And heaven and the new creation is not supposed to be a place we go to when we die. It's it's our home, the place we long for. I'd like to finish by quoting some of my favourite verses from the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, initially, and then Revelation 21. So 1 Corinthians 15, listen, I will tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed, for the perishable must close itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality." When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you might work in us, that we might have our eyes set on you, that we may have our hearts set on on permanent things rather than temporary things, and that we may actively look forward to our inheritance with you and that would transform how we live our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.